I'm sitting in the hot tub after I just had that meltdown with the Lord, and I'm just thinking about people and <clears throat> thinking about all the Christians that claim to be Christians but that are really miserable and frustrated and struggling to eke out a form of Christianity that they see in the New Testament. And it occurs to me that the great challenge in all of this, the part of this vehicle that's broken, uh, such that we cannot get there from here, is because we accept Christ half-heartedly at church, and we've been taught that salvation is the end, not the beginning. And we've been taught that the whole thing is about believing, not obeying. And there is this biblical catch-22. I, I do not fully understand uh, the truth about all this, but it is this idea that if you do not trust God, you cannot obey Him. If you do not obey Him, the Bible says you do not love Him. And that God and His Son, Jesus Christ, do not actually come to you and commune with you and make their home with you. But the Bible says that if you trust enough to obey and you obey the Lord's commands, that He will come to us and have His home be with us and that He, we will have His joy in us as a result of that. The Bible then says in Romans to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, with a capital S, not small s, meaning the Holy Spirit. And in our attempts to become a Christian and to live out the Christian life, of those two things, the one thing we do bring to the table is our flesh. We then try to live up to the teachings of Jesus Christ, and we try to live up to the Christianity that we know we're supposed to out of the power of the flesh rather than the power of the Spirit. And that is impossible. That is futile. What we bring to the table does not have enough power in it to walk out a true New Testament Christianity. The only way to do that is through the filling of the Holy Spirit, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit cannot begin to enter in your life and take over in a powerful way without there first being a prerequisite of trusting and obeying. It is a miserable catch-22. You cannot trust and obey because you do not have the Spirit. You cannot receive the Spirit because you do not trust and obey. I don't understand which one came first, the chicken or the egg. But I do know that out of genuine repentance, which would have been as a result of the Holy Spirit drawing a man's heart to him, there would have been a sense of repentance and brokenness. And as a result, <clears throat> having been forgiven, that person would have begun to love. And out of that love, they would have desired to obey the teachings of Christ. If a person does not truly believe that they needed the forgiveness that they received at the moment of salvation, it is not likely that they will love very much, which means they will not be likely to obey. So it is critical that we begin to trust God enough at His Word before we have any proof and to obey. And with that, the more of that we do, the more of the Holy Spirit we receive, the more power we gain to then do more of God's works and bring Him more glory. But to continue on another day in Christianity, simply out of an external in approach and simply out of the tool that we bring to the table, which is the flesh, is a complete waste of time. I've just gotten to the top of the trail that I run at here at Cecil Ashburn and I walked the whole way up and I've just been in prayer the whole time begging God to teach me his ways and to guide me in wisdom 
and just help me to make sense out of this whole journey that I'm on. And one of the things that I'm praying about is Jill. I feel like I feel like I'm not being released of her, and I realize that part of it is just the grieving process, and I'm, I miss her so much, and I want so bad for her to turn her heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be willing to be emptied of all lesser desires except for Him, where she literally does put Him first place in her heart. Um, and that is seen by her fruit, not just in her words, which is where I was at for so long. And I've been praying for her in her walk, and at the same time I'm still confronted by <clears throat> my need for much growth particularly in the area of selfishness. And I read something this morning that I thought was profound. Just when you think you've heard it all, and you know, it's just somebody else's version, I heard this concept this morning that there are two evils that stand in the way of a Christian becoming everything that God has asked them to become. And the first one is the spirit of the world which is constantly enticing you to be consumed with all the shiny objects, to be consumed with desire to be something you shouldn't, to have something you shouldn't, to go somewhere you shouldn't, and really just to be consumed with all of the affairs of the world. You know, Facebook and sports and celebrities and just being consumed by these things. And there's a never-ending list. I also... You know, just told Rick, I said, man, if you want to see the idols of the world, you need only go to the magazine rack at a Barnes and Noble. And if you just look across the magazine rack and all the words and the pictures and the things, you can see that there is, there is no end to the idols under the sun. The things that we give our very best enthusiasm and the things that we give our very best time, energy and attention to. It's It's crazy. And I see it, and I'm like, wow, look at this. And I used to be the one who would stand and just say, wow, look at all these interesting things you can learn about. I didn't see any harm in it at all. It was just, wow, there's my motocross magazines, and oh, there's some surfing things, and oh, I can learn about computers, and oh, I can learn about weightlifting, and oh, I can learn about, you know, video edit, whatever. And you see all these different things, and I really just thought, oh, they're just harmless. But what they really are, are gigantically, wonderfully created deceptions. Subtly steering people away from anything that would make any difference at the end of their life. And just constantly consuming more and more of their time, energy, and attention. And it all seems so harmless. It all seems that there couldn't be any evil at all behind it. And so that's the spirit of the world. And... He then says the second thing, this is Andrew Murray in the book, How to Experience the Holy Spirit. He says the second thing, the most dangerous thing, the big obstacle that stands in the way of Christians and them becoming everything God asks them to become is the issue of self. Just being self-consumed, the ego, um, selfishness, pride, all of these things, self-sufficiency, um, all of those self-issues. And he points out that the three years that the disciples spent with the Lord Jesus Christ, they learned how to overcome the first of these dangers, the, the spirit of the world. They learned how to give up 
the world. And they gave up worldly possessions. They gave up their rights to have great careers. They gave up their rights to even bury some of their family members that had been dead. They gave up the world. He said, but they had yet to give up self. And that the only way they were able to give up the self danger uh, or the, the culprit of self was through the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And I have to tell you that I was struck because I have been measuring. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. I have been measuring my walk in Christianity and my fruit and my, you know, level of, am I, am I trending up? Am I doing well? I've been measuring and comparing my Christianity to the old me and to others based upon my ability and this newfound desire to give up the things of the world. You know, here it is. I just did something huge a week and a half ago. Probably one of the biggest spiritual moves I've done was to delete all of my life's work. The kickstart my sales and surge sales training, the thing that made me hundreds of thousands of dollars that took, that cost in and of itself years of my life to develop and to think and to write. And I threw it all in the garbage. I had been keeping it as a safety net and it was constantly there, just always beckoning me. And at every time I would get anxious, I would think about running back to that sales training. And I finally gave it up and threw it away. And so I've been measuring, saying, wow, look at the spiritual progress that I'm making. I, I, and I'm not saying it out of pride. I'm measuring it. I'm testing my spirit. I'm measuring my fruit. <clears throat> and I'm looking at the, I, the fact that I don't desire, you know, nice things anymore. I don't desire nice cars. I'm not trying to chase a big house. I don't care about money so much anymore at all. I'm not trying to find fame. I'm revolting against the world. And I'm seeing all of this going, whoa, okay. I am definitely different. But here is where I'm still incredibly weak. Is in this area of self. And I've been beating myself up about it. I've been like, okay, no, wait a second. Why if I've been so willing to give up the world and all the things that people are still just giving of themselves to chase, why am I still struggling so much with the self thing? Why do I still get so consumed with worrying about, you know, Jill and the way she's loving me or showing me affection or, you know, um, still have such a need to defend myself to my mom when she persecutes me or defend my faith and I still care. Now, granted, not as much. But there's still a huge bit of it there. And what he's explaining is that it is only by the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit that self can die. So what I'm trying to figure out is where am I at in this process? Because the interesting thing to me is that I have experienced times and seasons, days, weeks, maybe even a couple of months, where... I wasn't consumed with self, I wasn't worried about me, and I was completely okay and almost oblivious to how much attention I may or may not be getting from my relationship with Jill or how well my needs are being met because I was carrying on in the joy of the Spirit. Then I noticed this idea that when I stepped out of obedience and began to engage in premarital sex with Jill against my better judgment, 
you know, even after I said, okay, this is clearly a gray area because it doesn't say explicitly in the Bible, do not have sex before marriage. And I studied it and tried every which way to justify it. And, you know, I'm not being this perverted guy. I'm not trying to just gratify the set, the, the desires of the flesh. I'm not just sleeping around with a bunch of people and I'm not violating any of the rules in Leviticus. These are two people who love each other and we want that emotional bond. And I just went on and on and on. Nevertheless, when I violated it, and I repeatedly violated it, I felt consequences. And one of the things that I noticed is that the presence of the joy of the Holy Spirit left me. And I noticed it for a period of weeks. And I was left in a position where my relationship with God was now completely dependent upon me. He was not meeting me. He was not pursuing me. He was not filling me. Bible study began to feel like work. Finding God began to feel like a tremendous amount of effort. And I was absolutely flabbergasted by what it felt like. And I also felt that the presence of the flesh pervaded. I began to worry about things that I, I wasn't worrying about and began to feel almost powerless in my spirit against the flesh. And so I think that gives me indication that I have had, obviously, the filling of the Holy Spirit. I have been leading a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life. I have all these physical, experiential manifestations where I've been seeing the numbers and, you know, God gives me this incredible courage to be bold and trust Him, like through the divorce thing and showing up without an attorney. I mean, that's something that takes the Spirit of God to enable a person to do. And then I've seen the fruit of that. But I've also seen the fruit of the disobedience. I've also now experienced that the Spirit of God leaves me if I'm not in obedience. And so we see this this dialogue, these, this passage of Scripture in the book of John around the 14th or 15th chapter where John, David, or Jesus is telling the disciples that he who loves me will keep my commands. And he says, I tell you this so that your my joy may be in you. And what he's basically saying is that if you obey me, if you love me, you'll obey me. And oh, by the way, if you obey me, you will receive my joy in you. Well, one can easily conclude that means if you're not obeying him, he is not with you. As he says, um, if, if, if anyone loves me and obeys my commands... We will love him, and my Father and I will come to him and make our home with him. Okay, how could that occur without there being an experience? That is something you would have to experience. If the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father decide they're going to come make their home with you, don't you suspect that would be something that you would have an experience with? It wouldn't be something that would occur in your conscious mind that you're just aware of it. It would be something that you would actually experience if he came to make your home, see, I have experienced this. And I've also experienced it being gone. And so, back to this idea that if we obey Jesus Christ, his joy comes inside of us. If we're not being obedient, we can then assume his joy leaves us. And that's where we are left to then try to go fill that void. I think this happens to non-believers. I think all of us have, quote, that God-given whole, you know, vacuum, whatever they call it, where the only thing that can satisfy a man's soul is the Spirit of God. Reconciliation to him through the work of Jesus Christ. 
And at the same time, the only thing that can fulfill the heart of a sold-out Christian, a, per, a, a person who's become a believer, is the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. Hence the reason we see Paul describing the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. And hence we see him telling us that we actually have a choice in the matter. Okay, so it's not like when you receive the Holy Spirit, He just comes in, takes over, and you just sit back on the spiritual recliner watching whatever ball game's on. It, it's evident that you still have a choice to walk by the Spirit. It is not some taking over of your will. It is more of a desire to yield to the will of the Spirit that I see that should be happening. You desire to yield to Him, and you desire to pay attention to Him, and you begin to recognize His voice. You begin to supplement His voice through Scripture. He begins to illuminate the truths in Scripture, and He begins to teach you specific truths for your life. Interestingly enough, Tozer states a fact that all Bible is truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. Meaning everything in the Bible is true, but not everything that's true is in the Bible because Jesus Christ said that when the Holy Spirit, the great counselor, would come, he would lead them into all truth. He even said, I have many more things to say to you. So that's where we get the Holy Spirit because all the Holy Spirit is, is the, it's the vehicle by which we receive the teachings of Christ and the new truths of Christ. Not new beyond the Bible, but just relevant truth for our life. Um... Revealed truth. So, okay, so this leads me to a place where now the question becomes, okay, so what of this thing with Jill and I? Okay, so I feel led to break up with her because I'm exhausted from trying to have my needs met. That's the truth. I'm exhausted from trying to get her to love Jesus Christ like I love him. I'm exhausted from trying to make her want to have more to do with him and to talk more about him than she does running or basketball and, and all the stuff with the kids. She poses the argument that she's busy and her life doesn't have as much time for that. I pose the argument that it's not anything to do with the amount of time. It has to do with the direction of the heart. And that you can't, you don't necessarily have to remove these other things from your life. The Holy Spirit would direct you to do so, but that you do need to be sold out to him, desiring him, and then trust him to tell you what things are in your life that shouldn't be there, etc., etc. So, four or five days ago, I break up with her. Um, we kind of mutually agree, you know, that, okay, this maybe is just something we're not going to work out. We've lost the desire to work on it. Jill is concerned I'm going to become, you know, some fanatic and, and place God and his word and the study thereof well above her and the family and she seems to have picked that up from concern of um, a pretty critical blog that was written about E.W. Tozer about his autobiography claiming that he um, was a great man of God but that he neglected his family in the process. I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure that it's not true. All I know is that what I do read of Tozer, I can say for a fact God has been teaching me before I read it and then I will read the exact words in that man's book. And so I have evidence that God is using him, his words, to confirm what the Holy Spirit is teaching me. And as I read Tozer's work, the Holy Spirit is all over that book. More so than probably any other Christian book I've picked up and read, which largely tells us what we want to hear. When you read Tozer's book, you don't want to hear any of that. And yet you know that it's truth. You know that you know that you know that it's truth. So I do not, um, I do not propose to know 
the quality of the man's marriage or the status of the, the wife's heart or, or the status of his spirituality in that area. But what I do know is that the things I read in his books have very much been written by the Holy Spirit, not by A.W. Tozer. They're right in line with Scripture, and they illuminate Scripture. They glorify Jesus Christ, and they point out the illness and the weakness of today's church and the weakness of today's body of Christ. Period. End of story. I don't think there's any person that loves and fears God and that looks at Scripture could say anything different, unless the devil themselves wrapped their eyes. So, having said that, there has been this concern, and I've been trying to lead Jill into this subtle knowledge of, hey, there's more. Hey, let's get back to our pure devotion of Christ. And Jill pointed out to me along the way that I have not been doing this in a very kind, gentle way. And I was rebuked by that. I was so brokenhearted because she's, she is right. I am given, because of my what Tozer even had said, that day that she would rebuke me, I read about the folly of an extreme disposition where he himself has had to make caution because he has been he become a nuisance and offended many of his friends as a result of this. And when I read that, my heart sank because I knew I was guilty of the exact same thing. My fervency, my zealousness comes out in indignation. And although my heart is my heart's desire is to see that person turn to the truth. <clears throat> that it is interpreted and and misinterpreted and taken as condemnation and judgmentalness and spiritual arrogance. And I spent the better part of 30 minutes in a car having this conversation with Jill, apologizing profusely, because I thought, oh my goodness, here I am trying to tell her that her spiritual condition is not right and she is better than me in this. She, I, I I have not been like Jesus Christ to her and I felt so horrible felt so bad and I apologized and she accepted and she said well how can I how can I put away a man whose humility is this that every time I bring up something to him he's he willingly admits it and repents so we had that conversation and we kind of tried to put things back together and I agreed that I would just gently walk with her and that we would talk about the expectations of how much time we would spend with religious things and how much time we would spend, you know, with sporting events and we were going to work more towards that and she even kind of hinted around that it's possible God wants her to hear some of the things I'm saying. So I began to just say, okay, maybe I can relax on this. But then the very next time that we saw each other would have been at a visit at the gym and I know that she had been feeling sick and but when she showed up I wanted so desperately Actually, there was a period of time before this where we had a big, long conversation about sports and the, the bomb kind of dropped and, and we, we got right back to discussing these differences between us um, and was there any way to, to bridge the gap between what she believed about the world and spirituality and what I believed and we landed on this argument of is the world a battleground or a playground? And I told her that I very much see that it's a battleground and I feel she very much sees more of it as a playground, like the people on the television watching a sports game do. And this got us to a point where she began to strongly disagree with me, and I began to just cry. And I went to her room, and I cried and cried and cried, because I knew right then and there, oh my goodness, we are unequally yoked. I was tired, exhausted, already kind of bruised from the last couple of days, and I ended up just in a really bad place, where I was just really broken and upset over it. Fast forward two days later, I wanted to meet her at the gym. 
and I decided that I would just meet her and greet her with a big hug and a kiss and tell her how much I love her and try to restore her. And when I got there, she showed me very little to no honor. She was distracted both by how she felt and by what was going on with the kids and getting them checked in. And she turned her cheek to me when I went to give her a kiss. I'd realized later, of my own accord, that she was probably doing that because she was sick. But it just set such a horrible tone in me that was already desperate to have her, um, you know, meet my need and, and to meet me in this desire to honor our relationship and work back towards. And when that didn't happen... I became very frustrated, very frustrated, and long story short, um, I just felt like we, we, we're, we're, we're over. I'm, I'm going to be always wanting her to reach over and touch me. My tank is always going to be empty um, most of the time because I she's never going to be enough for me. She's always going to be involved in something else or thinking about somebody else or whatever, and, and so... I became concerned about this. And I think that that was my selfishness in full steam ahead. And in the moment, it feels so real and it feels so right. Like, this is true. Like, I need somebody that's going to be able to cater more to me than this. And I feel that. I need somebody who wants to initiate telling me they love me. I need somebody who wants to initiate giving me a kiss more and touching me and being with me and being sweet and showing me honor. I feel like that. And I, I, I just know that I know that I know in my heart that that is my extreme selfishness at work. When I'm sitting around thinking about Jill and worrying, oh gosh, is she looking at that guy too much? Or is she going to fall back and call on one of her old boyfriends? Uh, the worries. These things are all extreme selfishness. So I'm able to know right now in the moment, looking back, that... Those feelings that overcome me where I feel like I'm not getting enough of her love or I feel like I'm not being loved enough, even though there's a book about love languages that would say I feel that way for a right reason because she's not showing me or communicating it to me in my language, I still believe at the bottom of my heart that it comes down to complete selfishness. Now Jill has even said when I've brought this up before that that's naive to think that I don't have some needs that need to be met and... I have kind of shied away and agreed, and in these moments where I'm driven solely by my flesh, I go, she's absolutely right. I have got to have somebody that wants to touch me all the time, somebody that wants to be around me all the time, somebody that will show me honor, somebody that will um, not make me feel threatened in my relationship by other men, somebody who will not put, you know, children and things and sports and stuff before me, and... While I think that those things are good advice and I think that those are not necessarily bad things, I feel absolutely convicted, certain, that that is the essence of selfishness that I have yet to be able to gain victory over, that I have yet to be able to walk fully in on the other side of. I still feel <clears throat> this strong sense of selfishness. And so, my thoughts are, I would be a fool to stay, my, my flesh says, okay, Michael, you're going to miss her, you, but you just have to give it up. You are not going to be able to be in a relationship with a woman where you are sitting at a ball game wondering why she's not touching you and feeling that your love tank is not full. And you're not going to be able to be happy. You're going to be upset 
And you're in turn going to change your behavior subconsciously and you're going to make her upset to try and get your needs met, which is the typical pattern. And I absolutely hate this. I absolutely hate this feeling. This has occurred with me now many, many times. And I kind of run hot and cold and hot and cold. And I'm wondering if the hot and cold is the difference between when I'm walking in and yielded to the Spirit versus when I'm just in the flesh mode and my flesh wants its needs met. Because I have displaced Christ either through disobedience or just by my sheer will. And so then I, then I am given to this selfishness which I despise because it's like in my spirit I feel a desire to want to give myself up for her. To completely surrender my right to have my needs met. And, and then when I try, I fail. I go to her house and it may last for a couple of hours and I feel good about just doing the dishes or cleaning and I get busy but, and, and it goes for a couple hours and then something happens and I begin to start thinking, she hasn't touched me in a while. She hasn't told me she loves me in a while. She hasn't even really seemed excited for me to be here. And all of a sudden, my self-ghost starts to speak to me and I start becoming agitated and I start going, that's right, she hasn't said anything to me in a while. That's right, she hasn't kissed me in a while. That's right, she... And it's like all of a sudden, I get myself in this frenzy of my needs are not being met. I need to panic. I need to tell her. I need to treat her differently. I need to do something. i got to have my needs met. And right now, walking on this trail where there is nobody around but me and the Lord, I can say definitively that that is selfishness and I as I cried out to the Lord last night know that I am so far away from being the person that Jesus Christ wants me to become because as long as I'm living like that I will never be able to fulfill God's purposes and I cannot get there of my own strength this is the thing I think is key for me to learn is that I'm trying in my own strength my own resources to change this about me and this is something that is not changeable in the flesh. The flesh is broken and always will be. It is only by the overcoming power of the Holy Spirit that I could ever be given enough power to be able to give myself up. And I don't want to do that. It's so hard. In my flesh I don't want to do that but in my spirit I desperately want to give myself up. I desperately want to be more like Jesus Christ. And I say to myself right now, so yes, Jill and I are unequally yoked in this area. Maybe I am at a place where God is more at the center of my heart and He is the burning passion of my soul and He is the main occupier of my time and thoughts. And, and, and not so much with Jill maybe. But I do know that she has known Christ. I do know that she has known the sweetness of His intimacy. And I do know that no matter who I would be with, they would not be in the same place. And that it would be my job, my, my, my job according to the Word, is to, to love my wife as the weaker vessel, honoring her and having her be washed in cleansiness and purity to be, to be you know, submitted before the Lord. So that part of my job is to shepherd her heart. Not to just find somebody who's exactly where I'm at. And then secondly, my second big beef with Jill is this area of her not being able to meet my needs. 
And this constant back and forth, I try, I mean, like even right now, even right now, I almost want to cry because I know how much I want that and I know how hard it is. And can I really do it? Could I, could I really go back to her and say, I've made a mistake. I don't want to throw this away. There's too much good here. I want instead to die continually to myself because I do, Lord Jesus Christ, I do want to die to myself. I want you to help me, Lord Jesus Christ. And if for some reason, God, if for some reason I'm just delusional, Lord, and that this is not possible... And then, in fact, I should find somebody who can meet my perfect little love language needs, which that just does not seem very Christian-like to me. That seems more flesh-like, more fallen man-like. But if I am wrong, God, if I am wrong, show me, O Lord. But if in my spirit I'm right right now, God, I ask for reconciliation to Jill. God, I ask for reconciliation Because, Lord God, I do feel selfish. And I know, I know that I know that I know that I'm selfish, God. And I can't shake it. I've been able to shake the desire for the world, but God, I can't shake the selfishness thing, Lord Jesus Christ. I need your help, Lord. Father, I need your help desperately, God. I'm desperate, Lord. Please help me, Lord Jesus Christ. This is, uh, this is astonishing to me. It's 9 o'clock on Sunday night, and this morning is the morning. Last night is the night that I cried my eyes out to the Lord, and I just got into a place of anguish. This morning I went for a walk on the mountain, and I concluded at the end of a conversation where I'm struggling of this should I be with Jill or should I not? And and I'm really struggling with the reality and being confronted with the fact that I'm, I've been brutally selfish, that I am absolutely brutally selfish. And at the very end of the message, I pose the idea, is it that I am to find a woman who's, who's at the same place and level of me? Is that the case? Or am I supposed to give myself up and be the leader to lead a woman like and treating her as the weaker vessel, such that I would be the one that would give of myself selflessly and quit demanding that all of my needs be met and that my affections be met just perfect. This question is what I was left with trying to answer. And I have even thought several times that God must have brought Jill into my life, and the reason why I saw 1111 is because she is the exact thing I need. To break my selfishness. God knew in advance that she would be wired in such a way that she would not meet those needs, but that she would probably set me up to die to those very things. And here this whole time I've been thinking, I have to find the perfect person to meet my needs, and yet instinctively in my spirit I knew that that is not right. I just knew that there's a part of me that needs to give myself up. I knew it. I cried over it. I, my spirit has, has longed for this. And then I get in bed. I, I'm getting ready to go to sleep. I watched the Dietrich Bonhoeffer thing tonight and the documentary. And he died as a martyr trying to kill Adolf Hitler. And he was a man who loved the Lord. And he was part of a conspiracy to, to kill. And he struggled with this idea of, is it even right for him to do this? 
and he gave his life and his essence and his work to the to the work of Jesus Christ and loved God and and ended up he was a, a great German evangelist and ends up becoming a martyr and as I, I finished watching the video I walked in here in my bedroom just lamenting the fact that I am such a weak example of a Christian that my little pathetic idea that I know God or love God or have some kind of a special relationship with Him is just pathetic. And I, I was tired and, and, and I was just going to go to bed and I, I got in here and brushed my teeth and I decided I would just read. And I just thought, I, I have this question of love on my mind. And I've been praying and asking the Lord to teach me about this. And I had just bought this book called The Beloved Works of C.S. Lewis. And in one of the books is called The Four Loves. And I thought, oh, let me just see what's in here. And I started reading and his writing is so weird. I almost just didn't want to pay attention to it. And I got to the one where it's talking about Eros. And I read through almost the whole chapter. And I'm like, yeah, all right, all right. So this is some weird writing. And... And then I get to this part that has just blown me away. And it's like I should have been asleep by now. And now I'm reading the very thing that I feel like the Spirit of God told me on the mountain today. And here it is, 9 o'clock at night. And he's talking about not taking sex too seriously. And not making it into a god. And being okay with having it be humorous and understanding you know the the ills that exist between a man and woman sometimes when they're trying to have sex and the desires not equal and there's this just this there should be this playfulness about it it shouldn't be made into this serious you know like almost a god and he says that he talks about some christian writers most notably a a man named milton have sometimes spoken of the husband's headship all right, well, here's what it says. It says, but I dare not mention this pagan sacrament, meaning sex, without turning aside to guard against any danger of confusing it with an incomparably, incomparably higher mystery. As nature crowns man in that brief action, meaning where he puts man over the woman in this magic moment of what looks like dominance and conquering in the sex act, he then says, so the Christian law has crowned him in the permanent relationship of marriage, bestowing, or should I say inflicting, a certain headship on him. This is a very different coronation. And as we could easily take the natural mystery too seriously, so we might take the Christian mystery not seriously enough. Christian writers, notably Milton, have sometimes spoken of the husband's headship with a complacency to make the blood run cold. We must go back to our Bibles, and this is where what he says is absolutely shockingly profound to me and makes me want to cry. I've never heard anything like this in my entire life. The husband is the head of the wife, just in so far as he is to her what Christ is to the church. He is to love her as Christ loved the church. Read on and give his life for her. This headship then 
is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives the least. She is most unworthy of him, is in her own mere nature the least lovable. For the church has no beauty but what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find but makes her lovely. The chrism of this terrible coronation is to be seen not in the joy of any man's marriage, but in its sorrows, in the sickness and sufferings of a good wife or the faults of a bad one and his unwearying, never-paraded care for his inexhaustible forgiveness, care or his inexhaustible forgiveness, forgiveness, not acquiescence. As Christ sees in the flawed, proud, fanatical, or lukewarm church on earth, that bride who will one day be without spot or wrinkle, and labor to produces the latter, So the husband whose headship is Christ-like, and he is allowed no other sort, never despairs. He is a king, Cofetua, who after twenty years still hopes that the beggar girl will one day learn to speak the truth and wash behind her ears. That is selflessness. That is being Christ-like. I feel about as small as an ant right now. I have known that I am so unbelievably selfish, and God has just smacked me in the forehead. He goes on to say, to say this is not to say that there is any virtue or wisdom in making a marriage that involves such misery. There is no wisdom or virtue in seeking unnecessary martyrdom or deliberately courting persecution. I'm thankful that he says this because that addresses the issue of my ex-wife because up until this point, I could clearly see where I would have been in line for that with my ex, but I was certainly deliberately courting a deep amount of persecution and emotional abuse and just a lack of obedience with God. He says, There is no wisdom or virtue in seeking unnecessary martyrdom or deliberately courting persecution. Yet it is, nonetheless, the persecuted or martyred Christian in whom the pattern of the Master is most unambiguously realized. So, in these terrible marriages, once they have come about, the headship of the husband, if only he can sustain it, is most Christ-like. Wow. Wow. 
I'm going to have to just ask the Lord what he wants from me in this because it seems obvious that he would show this to me the night that I just said this very thing. I concluded on my own based on the spirit up on the top of that mountain. God, you are just amazing, Father. This is absolutely incredible. About two hours ago, not even two hours ago, an hour and a half ago, I'm standing on top of this mountain, this gorgeous view. I'm all by myself. I'm the only person on the trail. And I'm standing there overlooking the city and just begging God for his continued protection and guidance. And at one point I said, Father, I need you to give me a sign that I'm on the right path, that I'm not just fooling myself. And I said, man, if anybody walked by right now and saw how I'm just talking to you, they would think I'm a complete idiot. And I said, yet God, I know you are more real than any person that could walk by right by now. And it was this idea that I'm so dependent upon him and I talk to him and I have faith in him and I commune with him and I get answers from him. And so I was at this point where I'm, I'm struggling with this selfishness idea and I'm begging God to help me get to the bottom of, you know, what is it he's wanting me to do to get rid of this selfishness? How is it he's wanting me to love? And he keeps teaching me, telling me that I need to learn to love, um, like how it's defined in the Bible. And so I said, Father, I, I just beg you, God, would you please just give me a sign, you know, that, that we're on the right track, almost like I needed to see a number or something to know that we're doing okay. As I'm leaving, I realized I had gotten a phone call from Steve Benton, my buddy who got burned in the fire and is just a, one of the strongest believers and fears the Lord and loves God more than almost any person I know. And so I called Steve back and he asked me how I was doing, and I quickly told him. I said, Steve, I've been struggling, man. I'm struggling in my relationship with my girlfriend. I, I actually broke up with her because I just decided that, you know, we had these love language issues, and I wasn't feeling loved, and, you know, I, I just I was so upset and frustrated that I figured, hey, it's just better to just let it go, and, and she finds somebody different that better meets her needs, and me find somebody different that better meets my needs, and that after doing that, the Lord allowed a series of circumstances to happen to really just smack me on the forehead and teach me that I'm one of the most selfish people I know, that this whole idea is baked in selfishness. And so I've been wrestling with this over the last couple of days, talking with Larry and journaling and seeking God's face and reading books and just really trying to wrestle this out with God. And I told Steve this, and Steve's first reply was, Michael, he said, son, you got to quit walking in the fear of losing that relationship. He said, that's what you're doing. He said, you're just walking in the fear of losing that relationship. He said, son, you got to quit walking in fear. And I just was like, whoa, where did that come from? And he kind of laughed. He said, I know I'm an old codger. He said, but I've been around a while. He said, I know a thing or two. And, you know, this is a man who I believe has had a Paul-like on the road to Damascus experience with God, where he was one of the most evil people that I certainly have ever known and gets burned up in this fire, is in the hospital for 58 days and comes out the other side of it claiming that the Spirit of God came to him introduced himself to him basically and he turned out to he is now one of the most gentle loving god-fearing men i know he talks to god all day long all he wants is god he doesn't even he just he just reads his bible and has to get away from his bible to be with people because he loves god so much 
and God miraculously healed this guy's body. And I mean, it's just an incredible encounter. So he just said this to me so nonchalant and so confidently. I was like, whoa, okay, so from there, I get home, I get showered up, I'm getting ready to get myself something to eat, and my great brother, the other person I know who, this other person loves the Lord more than any other person I know, and fears the Lord, and knows more about the Lord, really, than any other person. He's right there with, with Steve, and his name is Todd. And Todd and I have played a mean game of phone tag over the last two months. We've only talked to each other one time in two months for five minutes. He calls me just a few minutes ago, and I say, how you been? And he tells me, man, I've been through the ringer and back and beat up and pushed back up again and victory and beat down again. He's been in lawsuits and victory and lawsuits and crazy stuff. And I said, wow. And he said, well, what's going on with you? And I told him the whole little story. He then tells me a little bit more about some of the things he's going on. And he says at one point that God used every one of his senses. He was going through this lawsuit with these three ladies. These three ladies were suing him, and it was in the paper. And, I mean, it was just a horrible thing. And he said that the Holy Spirit used all of his senses to basically get his attention and say, perfect love drives out all fear. He heard this, he felt it, he experienced it, and he just knew that God was telling him he needed to love these three women, and that's what his position needed to be in the place. And he was like, wow, what is this? So he just entered into it fully obedient, and he felt an amazing immediate peace. Next thing I know, I'm telling him a little bit more about, man, Todd, let me just tell you what's been going on. I mean, this thing that you brought up about love, and God's trying to teach me to love, and I was just flabbergasted. I looked up this scripture, and the scripture, here it is, that Steve calls me and tells me, Michael, you're walking in fear, fear of losing the relationship. And 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When I am driven to get attention from Jill, it is not really that my need is that, oh, if you don't touch me, I'm going to wither. It is, you're not touching me. And that means, and, and I have this fear that I'm not being loved, that I'm going to be replaced or rejected. Again, coming back to self-preservation, fear of rejection. If something occurs that makes me feel like I'm not loved, fear kicks in, which means I am in turn not loving, which is right in line with what God's been teaching me. And so now here I've been begging God for an answer to this, and here is the answer. If I can learn how to love Jill, God's telling me to give myself up. If, 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 of course, if I'm afforded this opportunity, if she decides to reciprocate this relationship again, I could be given the opportunity that I need not fear. And, there, and Todd's like, I don't understand how that works. And I said, Todd, I know exactly how that works. The Holy Spirit's just giving me the answer. The reason why perfect love drives out fear is because perfect love surrenders its right to any and all expectations. If you do not stand the chance of losing anything, you can't possibly fear it. 
This is something that the Holy Spirit's been trying to teach me for the longest time. You cannot ever find yourself in a position where your needs are not being met if you have surrendered your right to have your needs met to begin with. So if you go into something surrendering your right, as Christ says, giving yourself up for her as a man should love his wife, he says he should love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to the point of death for her. That is somebody who is surrendering their expectations for needs to be met, for their selfishness to be taken care of. And if you, in fact, in perfect love, which in 1 Corinthians it says, love is not self-seeking. It is not rude. It is always kind. It is always patient. It is always hoping. It is always persevering. It is always... You know, da 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 da. I don't even know all the things it always is, but it's a lot. And here it is. This is the answer. And now I, God, I am so unbelievably excited. I mean, this is incredible. And as it turns out, I was able to share the C.S. Lewis passage with Todd, where God had smacked me on the forehead with this idea of what giving yourself up for your wife really looks like. I shared it with Todd, and he was dumbfounded. He said, Mike, I'm, I'm on the floor. He said, I, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. So he called me. I needed to hear the perfect love casts out all fear, and he needed to hear this thing from C.S. Lewis because he's battling in this huge struggle with his wife over trying to learn to love her and give himself up for her, and he's struggling with it. He can't seem to do it of his own. He wakes up every morning and confesses it to the Lord. And so now here we're, we are, two brothers that are basically fighting the same exact battle. God connects us at this perfect time and provides the answer and a better understanding of what perfect love is. And that the reason I'm not able to do it is because of this fear. But perfect love drives out all fear because it has surrendered its right to have expectations met. When you have no fear of having your expectations not met, you are in perfect love because you have essentially surrendered and sacrificed yourself for someone else. Oh, and by the way, you did it in advance. You did it of your own choosing. That is what love means. And it's an action, not a feeling. I believe God is teaching me that this is an action that stems from obedience. You don't feel like doing this. You do it because you trust and you obey. Amen. Wow. Incredibly, after all that I've been going through with Jill and talking about denying myself, all the anguish of prayers, all the the just conviction in my heart, even with my parents, with friends, I've been telling everybody that God is asking me to give myself up. It is evident. It's writing on the wall. So I get in my bed. I finish my work. I turn the page, and this is the very first page that I read. I'm just going to read a couple of pages on this pretty quickly. Chapter 5, How the Blessing is Hindered. The scripture is Matthew sixteen twenty four through 25 that says, Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. I have quoted this verse today no less than four or five times in talking with people. Now it says, Many earnestly seek the full blessing of Pentecost, which is the filling of the Spirit, and yet do not find it. Often the question is asked, what may be the cause of this failure? 
To this inquiry, more than one answer may be given. Sometimes the solution to the problem points in the direction of one or other sin which is still permitted. Worldliness, lovelessness, lack of humility, and ignorance of the secret of walking in the way of faith, and indeed many more causes, may also be mentioned with justice. Many people think they have come to the Lord and sincerely confess these failures and put them away, yet they complain that the blessing does not come. It is necessary to point out that there still remains one great hindrance, namely the root from which all other hindrances have their beginning. This root is nothing less than our individual self, the hidden life of self with its varied forms of self-seeking, self-pleasing, self-confidence, and self-satisfaction. The more earnestly anyone strives to obtain the blessing and desires to know what prevents him, the more certainly he will be led to the discovery that it is here the great evil lies. He himself is his worst enemy. He must be liberated from himself, and the self-life to which he clings must be utterly lost. Only then can the life of God entirely fill him. A full understanding of the cross. This is what is taught us in the words of the Lord Jesus to Peter. Peter had uttered such a glorious confession of his uh, of his Lord that Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. But when the Lord began to speak of his death by crucifixion, the self-same Peter was seduced by Satan to say, Don't far, far be it from thee, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The Lord said to him that not only must he himself lay down his life, but that this same sacrifice was to be made by every disciple. Every disciple must deny himself and take up his cross in order that he, he himself may be crucified and put to death on it. He that would save his life will lose it, and he that is prepared to lose his life for Christ's sake will find it. You see, then what the Lord teaches us and requires. You see then, you see then what the Lord teaches and requires. Peter had learned through the Father to know Christ as the Son of God, but he did not yet know him as the crucified one. Of the absolute necessity of the death on the cross, he as yet knew nothing. It may be so with the Christian. He knows the Lord Jesus as his Savior. He desires to know him better. But he does not yet understand that he must have a deeper discernment on the, of the death of the cross as a death which he himself must die. He must actually deny and lose his life, his whole life in being in the world, before he can receive the full life of God. This requirement is hard and difficult. And why is this so? Why should a Christian be called on always to deny himself, his own feelings, will, and pleasure? Why must he part with his life? The answer is very simple. It is because that life is so completely under the power of sin and death that it has to be utterly denied and sacrificed. The self-life must be wholly taken away to make room for the life of God. He that would have the full, overflowing life of God must utterly deny and lose his own life. Only one great stumbling block lies in the way of the full blessing of Pentecost. It lies in the fact that two diverse things cannot at the same time occupy the very same place. This is fascinating to me, and I knew exactly what he was applying, implying when he said this, because just days ago, I discovered when the Lord showed me the scripture that man cannot serve two masters. He will either love one or despise the other, that that does not just apply to money, that that actually applies to me because I have made myself a master. And if myself is a master and God is a master, or if I've made 
myself a master and somebody else like Jill is a master, if Jill begins to infringe on my master, I'm going to revolt against it. They, they cannot – my rights and desires cannot occupy the same place as God's. It goes on to say here, your own life and the life of God cannot fill the heart at the same time. Your life hinders the entrance of the life of God. When your own life is cast out, the life of God will fill you. As long as I myself am still something, Jesus himself cannot be everything. My life must be expelled. Then the spirit of Jesus will flow in. Let every seeker of the full blessing of Pentecost accept this principle and hold on to it. The subject is of such importance that I would like to make it still clearer by pointing out the chief lessons which these words of the Lord Jesus teach us. Self and the power of sin. When God created the angels and man, he gave them a separate personality, a power over themselves, with the intention that they should, of their own free will, present and offer that life to him, in order that he might in turn fill them with his life and his glory. This was to be the highest blessedness of the creature. It was to be a vessel filled with the life and the perfection of God. The fall of angels and men alike consisted of nothing but the perversion of their life and their will and their personality away from God in order to please themselves. This self-exaltation was the pride that cast them out of heaven into hell. This pride was the infernal poison that the serpent breathed into the ear and the heart of Eve. Man turned himself away from God to find delight in himself in the world. His life, his whole individuality was perverted and withdrawn from the control of God that he might seek and serve himself. You must utterly lose that life before the full life of the Spirit of God can be yours. To the minutest details, always and in everything, you must deny that self-life. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A deep conviction of the entire corruption of our nature is an experience that is still lacking in many people. It appears to them both strange and harsh when we say that in nothing is the Christian free to follow his own feeling. Self-denial is a requirement that must prevail in every sphere of life and without any exceptions. The Lord has never withdrawn his words of, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Is your heart open? And this goes just on and on and on. I mean, this is just incredible. I mean, to think that I've bought like 15 books. This one is just called Experiencing the Holy Spirit. And tonight's reading, after I've spent all this day today praying and really just for the last week, just pouring my heart out, telling the Lord what a worm I am, how useless I am, and how I can't do it without Him. Here he even says, Happy is the man who is brought to the point of acknowledging his helplessness and impotence. He will especially need to deny himself here and cease to expect anything from his own life and strength. He will rather lay himself down in the presence of the Lord as the one who is impotent and dead, that he may receive fully the blessing from him. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. This is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Praise to the Lord Jesus Christ.